You and I are sheep. Everything we need is found where? Only in the shepherd. Nowhere else. And we run around looking for it everywhere else. It's only in the shepherd. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to Mark chapter 6, we'll continue our study in uh, Mark. I have new glasses and I can actually see all of you. I mean, <laughs> this is really HD the third time around after cataracts. It's really remarkable. I looked at Roger and I'm going, wow, that's what he looks like. It's pretty remarkable. So Mark 6, uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 30 is where we'll begin. Um, an alcoholic who became a believer was once asked how he could possibly believe all the nonsense in the Bible about miracles. You don't believe that Jesus changed water into wine, do you? He said, I sure do, because in our house, Jesus changed the whiskey into furniture. <laughs> Jesus performed 34 miracles that are recorded in the four Gospels. And the Apostle John tells us that Jesus performed many other miracles that were not recorded in the Bible. John chapter 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Of course, the ultimate point of a miracle, by the way, is not merely to bless the one who's directly impacted by the miracle. Verse 31, John tells us the reason Jesus did the miracles in the first place. His supernatural miracles authenticate his claim that he himself is God in human flesh. Verse 31, but these, these miracles have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So these supernatural miracles authenticate his claim that he is God himself in human form. They are visible proof that God is who he says he is, that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, these miracles that we're going to look at have been done over about a three-year period. Jesus had a three-year period of ministry on earth. They literally have directly impacted thousands of people, and they were witnessed by tens of thousands of people over about a 36-month period. And these miracles have been faithfully recorded in Scripture uh, for us who have lived after, of course, the time of Christ. And as John says, those who believe the biblical record, who believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who has paid the penalty for their sins, they will live forever with Jesus in heaven. Now, of all these 34 recorded miracles in the Gospels, only two are recorded by all four Gospel writers. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, of course, is the central miracle for the ages, and that's what we celebrate this morning, because in it lies the conquest of death, which is the last enemy. The only other miracle that's recorded by all four writers is the feeding of the 5,000. And that's the miracle we're going to take a look at today. It's recorded in Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6. So let's, let's go back a little over the historical context. Jesus has about a three-year ministry on earth before the crucifixion. He's finished 
two of the three years. He spent about a year down in Judea. He spent a little over a year in Galilee and northern Israel. So he's nearing the end of his time in Galilee. And Rob, long-suffering Rob, is going to show you a map that I attempted to send him earlier of Tyre, Sidon, Caesarea Philippi. It's really a look at where Jesus physically is during his period of ministry. This ministry, this miracle really, is the capstone display of Jesus' divine power. The feeding of the 5,000 was so unbelievable in scope. Now, thousands saw this miracle, but they not only saw the miracle, they participated in the miracle. So after this miracle, Jesus is going to spend some time north and east out of the country. He's literally going up to Tyre and Sidon, which are on the Mediterranean coast, to the north and west. He's going to spend some time there, and then he's going to come back down to Galilee, and then he's going to go northeast, way up by Mount Hermon uh, in Caesarea Philippi, which is Banias, which is the, the headwaters of the Jordan River. We just had a group come back from Israel, and I guarantee you went there, correct? So it's really, really marvelous uh, north of the Hula Valley. And so he spends some time in Caesarea Philippi. After that, he's going to travel down the Jordan River Valley to Judea. Judea is the southern region of the land of Israel. And ultimately, he has a date in Jerusalem with the cross. And so he's headed toward the cross from day one, and now he's really getting focused on that. So the Gospel of John tells us that this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, took place at a very specific time. It was near the feast of the Passover. Passover is an eight-day festival that commemorates Israel's deliverance from their slavery, their bondage in Egypt. It was instituted by God through Moses. And Passover always takes place from the 15th to the 22nd day of the Jewish month Nisan, N-I-S-O-N. It's the first day of their religious calendar, not their civil calendar, religious calendar, and it's always our March-April. So the Jewish month of Nisan overlaps March-April. So this year, 2019, Passover takes place from April 19th, a couple days ago, through April 27th. So we are in the Passover season as we speak. Now this miraculous feeding of the 5,000 obviously takes place in the spring, right? March, April. And it's almost exactly one year before the cross because Jesus was crucified during Passover week, as you know. So let's pick up the narrative in verse 30, Mark 6, verse 30. The apostles got together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Now remember, Jesus had sent them out two by two to do ministry. And now they're coming back for a debriefing. Verse 31. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. Verse 32. They went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people, the crowds, saw them going, and many recognized it and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. Here's the principle. Jesus provides rest for the weary. If you don't take a break today, you'll probably break in pieces someday. Jesus provides rest for the weary. If you don't take a break today, you'll probably break in pieces someday. So Jesus has deputized his disciples. The first year, year and a half, almost two years of his ministry, he's doing the ministry and they're watching. Now he says, I'm going to send you out. You're going to minister in my name and in my power and my authority 
in the region of Galilee. I'm commissioning you to preach the gospel. I'm commissioning you to preach repentance to the nations of Israel. Jesus has delegated to them his divine authority, divine power. They're, they're healing people. They're casting out demons and disease. And they might even raise the dead. Uh, they're preaching with great power and authority. They're doing miracles. And the miracles that Jesus has entrusted to them, he's given them his divine authority, demonstrate that the message they're preaching is just not a human message. It is a divine message. By the way, the primary purpose of miracles is not necessarily to bless the person who's recipient of the miracle, although that is important. It's to demonstrate that this message of the gospel is in fact divine. It is in fact from God because it is authenticated by miracles. So Jesus' goal here is to, of course, multiply ministry effectiveness by multiplying the number of disciples who can do what he did. And you and I are a 2,000-year continuation of that because we do what? We carry the message of the gospel to the lost, just like the disciples did, because we too have been called in Matthew 28 to carry that message. Rob's going to show you a map of the region in which they operated. They operated primarily in the region of Galilee. Galilee's northern Israel. And quite frankly, it's a reasonably small region. It's about 25 miles uh, by 50 miles. So kind of give you an idea of dimensionality. Not too far by car, but if you had to walk in the summer, it was probably bigger than what it seemed like. Now, the Sea of Galilee is, is, is geographically kind of in the center on the right of this region. But the Sea of Galilee is really the economic and population capital of this whole area. Largely an agrarian agricultural area. At this time, the time of Christ, there's about 200 villages in this region, 50 by 25 miles. Now, very small. I mean, when we say villages, we don't mean obviously large or villages and, and small towns in this region. And Jesus sent out his 12 disciples in pairs. So there's six teams, and he sent them out to minister and to preach and to heal and to cast out demons and to preach repentance to the, to the nation of Israel in this area. We don't know how long they're gone. Could be weeks but they probably preached in quite a few of these villages. And they just returned from this mission trip, this blitz, I guess, if you will, to Galilee, and they're debriefing Jesus about their experience. And they're saying, man, the demons were subject to us, and people respond to the gospel. We heal the sick. We raise the dead. And they're, quite frankly, they've been so busy ministering to the crushing crowds, they're exhausted. They're just out of gas. And Jesus provides for the needs of those who follow him. He says, we need rest. And so let's get in the boat and let's get out of here. Rob's going to show you a map of the, the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, and Bethsaida, Judas, uh, the northeastern shore of the Galilee Lake. Luke 9.10 records that the, they sailed to the village of Bethsaida. And it says they got into the boat, very specific boat. Uh, several years ago, uh, I think in the 80s, I think it was 86, a 2,000-year-old boat was uncovered under the mud on the Sea of Galilee. The Galilee uh, Lake at that point had a very, very severe drought, and so the waters had receded, and they uncovered this boat. It's about 26 feet long, uh, and uh, 26 feet long seems big, but when we have 13 men in it, it shrinks a little bit in terms of size-wise, but it's a pretty standard size boat. You could either sail it or row it, and of course they would sail when they could. And they went to the village of Bethsaida. Now there are two villages of Bethsaida. One is on the west side near Tiberias. One is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. 
Most scholars believe that this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, took place near the village of Bethsaida Julius, which is a small fishing village on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, just to east of the Jordan River. Matter of fact, it was so small that there are really no significant ruins remaining even today. That city was built by Philip the Tetrarch. Remember, last week we talked about Herod and how he beheaded John. Well, this Philip the Tetrarch is the half-brother of Herod Antipas, who had, he had beheaded John the Baptist. We talked about that last week. Three members of the family of Herod the Great were ruling over Israel at this point in time, and Philip happened to be one of them. And this whole crew only ruled because Rome said they could. So all these Herods, they were all kings, but they were very indebted to Rome for their ability to rule. They really had no authority other than that which Rome gave them. So Philip built this village and he named it Bethsaida because that was the name of the daughter of Caesar Augustus. This is called sucking up, for those of you that want to know. In politics, this happens, right? This was not unusual. During this period of time, often villages and towns were named in honor of some famous Roman in order to curry favor with the Caesar and, of course, secure your ability to keep ruling. As a matter of fact, Herod Antipas had built a beautiful city on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, named it after the Roman emperor Tiberius. And, of course, we looked at that a little bit last week as well. Tiberius is still there. It's an absolute gorgeous city. Unfortunately, about halfway through the construction, they figured out it was built on a Jewish cemetery. So no Jew would ever visit that city during that period of time. So it was larger Greek and Roman. So Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling from Capernaum to uh, uh, the city of Bethsaida by boat. And it's about four miles by water. Now, if they're sailing and not rowing, for, you could easily see the ship from land. You could easily see the sail. I mean, they're sailing northeast. Scripture tells us the crowd who's there sees them leave, figures out where they're going, and then runs along the shore to get there ahead of them. So if you're sailing by water, it's about four miles, but along the shore, it's about eight miles. And this was not a small crowd. As we're going to see pretty soon, this crowd was probably around 20,000, 25,000 people. So it's a big, big crowd. This crowd, you say, well, why in the world would they follow Jesus all the way along the shore when Jesus is sailing on the lake? Well, think about it. He's been doing hundreds of miracles for over a year in this region. He's healed people. He's raised the dead. He's cast out demons. He's done miracle after miracle after miracle. This is the greatest show on earth. Literally. And most of this crowd, unfortunately, are not genuine followers of Jesus. They're thrill seekers. And, you know, you and I look at them and go, I can't believe they'd do that. You'd do the same thing. If you had a sick relative, would you not run along the shore and say, maybe Jesus will heal them? Right? I mean, of course you would. So the disciples have sailed away to Bethsaida to get away from the crowd so they can get some rest. And as we'll see, it turns out to be a very short Rest just in the boat, verse 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and it's already quite late. 
Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Here's the principle. Only when we see like Jesus sees and feel like Jesus feels will we act like Jesus acts. Only when we see like Jesus sees and feel like Jesus feels will we act like Jesus acts. Now, the crowd, this large crowd, has gotten to Bethsaida ahead of Jesus and the disciples. So he lands on the beach, and they're waiting for him. And the disciples don't see this crowd with the same pair of eyes that Jesus does. It says, Jesus saw them with compassion. And when you look at the disciples' response, you look at them and going, you're interrupting my rest period. You are inconvenient. You're a pain, Right? The disciples have not yet learned to see people like Jesus sees people, and I can identify with the disciples. You ever been so tired? Your phone's ringing and you let it ring because you don't have the energy to even talk to who's on the other end of the line? Matter of fact, you don't even care who's on the other end of the line. You're not even going to look to see who you're missing. The disciples are wiped out. They're tired. They didn't want to deal with one more problem. They were tired, but so was Jesus. However, they did not see people with the same pair of lenses that Jesus saw people. And so they didn't feel what he was feeling. Jesus saw the crowd not as a crowd, but as individuals. And it specifically says they were lost like sheep without a shepherd. And because he loved them, he was compassionate toward them. He literally felt their pain in his gut. I mean, it literally is a, a physical sensation of empathy and emotion when, when you feel someone's pain, you hurt with them. And their lostness and their vulnerability led him to serve them despite his exhaustion. And I'll tell you, most of us probably only do that once or twice in our life. And I'll tell you when you'll do it. You'll do it when you have newborn babies. And you'll do it if your grandbabies are ever living with you. You'll get out of bed. You'll be exhausted. You will be so tired you're stupid. And you will do what you need to do because you love the baby and the grandbaby. Jesus loved. That's why he served even though he was tired. And he says they were like sheep without a shepherd. And every single person in that culture knew exactly what sheep were like. And Holly could lecture us for literally hours on sheep. So let me give you just a very brief overview on what sheep are like. Sheep are known for their flocking, their following, and their fearful behaviors. Flocking, following, fearful. Sheep are very gregarious animals. They like to be with each other. They like to band together. And they don't, I don't know if they like each other, but they do it because there's safety in numbers. And there's safety in numbers because they have absolutely no defense against a predator. If a predator attacks a lone sheep, the outcome is virtually 100% guaranteed the sheep is going to die. So sheep are natural-born followers and unfortunately have no discernment about who they follow unless they're trained and coached. They follow whoever is leading. When one sheep moves, the instinct of the rest of the flock is to follow the sheep that's moving, even when it's moving into danger. In 2005, more than 450 sheep in Turkey were killed 
when they all followed one lead sheep who tried to cross a 15-meter deep ravine. That's about 45 feet, 15 meters, and fell to its death. More than 1,100 sheep went over the cliff, following, just following, and it kept going and kept going. And some who fell later survived because the bodies of those who had fallen earlier cushioned their fall. And you look and you go, this sounds like lemmings. Uh, and Jesus said that you and I are like lemmings. Sheep are very easily lost. They have virtually no homing instinct. We read about animals that are lost, get lost, and they find their way home after months and thousands of miles. Sheep don't have any ability to do that outside their home range. They have a very narrow home range. On their home range, they're pretty good. Take them off their home range, they're in deep trouble. They can graze with very little situational awareness. They can they wander away without being aware of it. They are virtually defenseless against predator attacks, and therefore they're fearful and timid because they have no natural defenses. They don't fight. They can't run very fast. They give up very easily. There's almost no willingness to fight and live, and they are completely dependent upon the shepherd. Now, I want you to hear this well. Everything, everything the sheep need is found only in the shepherd. Do you understand that? You and I are sheep. Everything we need is found where? Only in the shepherd. Nowhere else. And we run around looking for it everywhere else. It's only in the shepherd. Bottom line, sheep without a shepherd will die, and the Bible compares people to sheep. It's not flattering, but it's, ac it's accurate. We, like sheep, are completely dependent on our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And, of course, our human pride denies this, but history demonstrates it. The good shepherd always knows exactly what the sheep need at any point in time. Jesus knows exactly what these people need. Now, I'll tell you, they want something different than what they need. They want what? Free food, miracles, healings, raising from the dead. I may want the spectacular. They don't need that. What they need is truth. Condition, truth about the condition of their souls and their need for the Savior. And it says, Jesus taught them many things. He taught them truth. He taught them truth about the kingdom of heaven. He taught them that he is the promised Messiah. He taught them that salvation is through faith alone and him alone. He may have repeated the Beatitudes. I don't know. But I surely know he called them to repent and receive forgiveness of their sins. And it says he taught them for a long time. Now, this is not your 30-minute sermon. He probably taught them for hours. I expect that he probably taught them somewhere late morning to late afternoon. Because by the time the disciples come to him, it's probably very late in the afternoon. And they come to him and they state the obvious. Lord, we're in a really isolated place here, right? It's really late <clears throat> and people are getting hungry. And of course, they have, they've stated the problem. And how do you feel about people that state the problem and don't have a solution? You want to say, yes, I, I understand the problem. But I'm not looking for problems, I'm looking for solutions. So the disciples say, we have a problem. You know what their problem is? The crowd. The people are the problem. And they say, Lord, here's the solution. Tell them to go away. 
Tell them to go play in the freeway. Just, you know, tell, tell them to leave. Just dismiss them. Turn them loose. We don't want to deal with them. You know, tell them to go into the surrounding villages. It's a few miles walk and they can buy food for themselves. Let the sheep figure out where the food is because the shepherds are too tired. Now that will lead to dead sheep. And Jesus knows that these people are lost and they need a shepherd and his love for them will not allow him to abandon them in their time of need any more than you will abandon your children or your grandchildren. Jesus rejects the disciples' solution and he gives them a challenge to feed the crowd themselves. This is remarkable. Verse 37. But he answered and said, you give them something to eat. You, you present me with a problem, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Verse 41, and he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves and he kept giving them all to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied and they picked up 12 baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. Verse 44 is almost a postscript. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Here's the principle. When we faithfully surrender our little to Jesus, he makes it into much and meets the needs of the many. When we faithfully surrender our little to Jesus, he makes it into much and meets the needs of the many. See, provision is never the problem. It's a lack of faith in the provider. That's the problem. We don't need more of what God provides. We need more faith in God himself. Jesus provides what he knows we need when we trust him and not ourselves. Here's, I didn't highlight this and I probably should. I want you to write this down. What we need to be satisfied is whatever Jesus chooses to provide. What we need to be satisfied is whatever Jesus chooses to provide. What we need to be satisfied is whatever Jesus chooses to provide, and our behavior sometimes doesn't reflect that. Because we say, God, you've provided this, and I really don't like this. I want that. And our good shepherd knows what? exactly what we need and when we need it. So God asks us to trust him by surrendering whatever little we now have. And I know many of you are going, man, I got a lot of little. I got a whole lot of nothing, right? And Jesus, you want me to surrender that to you? I don't have enough for me. There's an old gospel tune. It says, little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There is a crown and you can win it when you go in Jesus' name. So Jesus is really, he's going to feed the crowd, but he's training the 12 to trust him. 
to provide whatever they need. And to provide means to supply whatever's needed. When someone says, I provide for my family, it means you supply whatever your family needs. That's what shepherds do. And you as parents and grandparents are shepherds of your family, which means you are to provide whatever your family and your extended family needs. Jesus tells his disciples, you feed the crowd. And this is a faith test. And guess what? They all failed. Every single one of them. The disciples think they need more food for the sheep, but what they really need is more faith in the shepherd. Now, I want you to think about this. They have just gotten back from a short-term missions trip, right? They've been gone a few weeks. They've healed the sick, raised the dead, preached the gospel, seen miracles, been divinely empowered by the Holy Spirit to do miracles, Right? I mean, they've actually done miracles and miracles and miracles and miracles, cast out demons. They have great success and they ought to have had enough faith that Jesus would be able to fix this problem. Not. John 6 tells us that Philip responds to Jesus. Now, Philip is the bean counting CPA in the group. He's probably, quite frankly, he's probably the logistics guy for the disciples. You know, he's the one who's responsible for arranging supplies and food and lodging. Remember, they got a ministry. They're moving around the countryside. Somebody's got to arrange where they're going to stay, where they're going to eat. Who's going to do the logistics? Probably Philip is the guy. He's the bean counter. He's added up all the money the disciples have in the kitty. They had a kitty. Judas was the treasurer, but Philip, he's added it all up, and he says, there's about 200 denarii in the kitty. And one denarii is one day's wage for a common labor, right? Unskilled labor, one day's wage, one denarii. So 200 denarii is about eight months' wages, right, for a common labor. And Philip says, man, 200 denarii, we can't buy enough food that everyone in this big crowd could even have one bite. We just don't have it. It's impossible, right? The crowd is way too big for them to feed. The problem is unsolvable. And by the way, Lord, even if we had the money, it's not like there's a 7-Eleven on the corner here. You know, no Costco's. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're on a plane. I'm going to talk about it in a minute where we are, but there's nowhere really close to buy food. It's not available here. And all the disciples agree with, with Philip. And Jesus says, how much bread do you have? Go look. The implication is they hadn't even done an inventory. So they go look. And Peter's brother, Andrew, he brings a boy to Jesus. He says, here's a young man. He's got five barley loaves and two fish, John 6, 9. And even Andrew says, but what are these among so many? They're obviously looking at the size of the crowd and they're going, whoa, this is a big crowd. And five loaves and two fish is not going to get it done because they are still only seeing horizontally and they're still only trusting in their own abilities. And you know something, when we're honest and you look in the mirror, you have to admit, uh, there's a whole lot of things that are not going to happen if it depends on me. Because I do not have what it takes to get God's work done. It's amazing. They've seen Jesus do multiple miracles for two years. They themselves have done multiple miracles over the last few weeks, and yet this problem just overwhelms their faith. And I can identify with them. Because how often has the Lord done something in your life that is remarkable? And most of the time you said, 
Wow, wasn't that a lucky coincidence that that occurred? He's saved your bacon from X, Y, or Z, and you said it was just a coincidence. How much of the time do we look at our circumstances and think they just happened as opposed to God engineered them? Most of us are here this morning and you didn't get in a car wreck only because the Holy Spirit obviously was in the car with you and he didn't want to get banged up. I'm joking. <laughs> so these apostles, they're depending on, like it's all dependent on their abilities. They've got a crowd of hungry people. They got, that's the problem. The provision, they got one boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish. Rob's going to show you a picture. By the way, these were not five loaves of Wonder Bread. Okay? <laughs> They weren't fluffy white flour cake muffins. They're small, round, barley biscuits. This is barley. Barley's the grain of the poor. Wheat is the grain of the rich. Wheat has got the yeast. This is almost like flatbread. It, it may be somewhat like crackers. There may be a little rise in it. You might have a little yeast, but it's pretty flatbread, right? Like a cracker biscuit. And the fish are pickled or salted or, or combination thereof. Probably sardines, small sardines. They're probably caught in the Sea of Galilee. They have a major fishing industry there for millennia at that point. What we do know is there was at least one responsible mother in the whole crowd who'd packed a lunch for her kid, right? Apparently, that's all they can find. You know, we don't know if there's other ones, but apparently this is the only one who came forward. So Luke describes the scope of the problem. There's 5,000 men. Matthew 14 says, not including women and children. So if you add spouses and children, most scholars believe this crowd could run anywhere from 20 to 25,000 people. So it's a big crowd, and they're hungry. And from a human point of view, this is an insoluble problem, and that's the point. Humanly unsolvable problems require divine solutions because human solutions never accomplish divine objectives. Jesus' goal was not just to feed their physical hunger, but it was to reveal himself as God in human form so that they would believe on him and be saved and have eternal life, not just another meal for today. So we know that the God who created the heavens and the earth is a God of organization, he's a God of order, and so Jesus commands them to sit down on the grass. And so we know it's in the springtime. Because if you have green grass around the Sea of Galilee, those of you who have been to the Sea of Galilee, you know about May, June, it turns toast. I mean, it's just dry and brown. So we're pretty sure it's in the springtime. Since it's time of the Passover, we know it's March, April. Rob's going to show you some apic or maybe multiple of, of the mountainside where Jesus fed the 5,000. And they sit in groups of 50 or 100. And you'll notice that you have a, a very large plain. This is a very large, flat area. Uh, very easily could seat 25,000 people. This is not a problem. So there's plenty of level room to seat these people. And it said, Jesus took the boys' lunch. He blessed it, gave it to the disciples so the disciples could distribute it to the crowd. And the Greek word here says, Jesus kept giving. Kept giving the loaves and the fishes to give to the crowd. He literally kept multiplying. The loaves and the fishes literally multiplied in his hands. I wonder what that would look like. You know, you think, man, where was the VCR when he needed it? Who had a smartphone back then? I've often wanted to see, just to see the, the loaves and the fishes just kind of explode from his hands because it says he kept giving. Now, if there's 25,000 people, he's multiplying stuff pretty quickly, right? 
But we shouldn't be surprised because Scripture tells us Jesus Christ is the creator of the heavens and earth. And he said, let there be light, and there was light. I mean, he spoke the word, and he created the universe out of nothing. Creating food out of nothing is not a problem for the creator. So he's creating food for this famished crowd. Here's the part that's interesting. These barley biscuits were made from barley that was never planted. And the fish were fish that never swam. They were literally created out of nothing in front of your eyes. This meal was not made out of sin-cursed material because they came straight from the Creator's hand, not from planet Earth. This was a heavenly banquet in the fact that it was sinless, perfect food straight from the hands of Creator God Himself. Of course, the only parallel we have is the food that Adam and Eve ate in the Garden of Eden. It must have been delicious. I'll bet these tomatoes didn't taste like what you get out of the store. You, know, you can play baseball with some of those tomatoes, right? I mean, they're tough, right? I mean, it must have been completely delicious. The only other parallel I can think of is the manna that came where? Out of heaven for the children of Israel, right? It's, the Lord provides for us in ways that are completely um, remarkable and miraculous. And the text says that everyone ate until they were full. It's, the other word is satisfied. By the way, the word here, full or satisfied, means to fodder up an animal. Literally, you have a grain bag for an animal. Mia, you know this. And this grain bag just goes down, 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 down. And the horse or the cow keeps their mouth going down, 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 until they can't reach the bottom. They eat until there's no more room. The word is literally gorged. It's eating until there's no room. It's eating like you till you pass out, like Thanksgiving, right? You eat until you pass out. That's what we're talking about, right? I don't think anybody said, I don't like fish. I'm gluten-free. You know, the reality is this food was heavenly food. It had to be completely nutritious. It had to be totally good for you. So you wouldn't have any allergies to it. It's perfect food, right? And tasty. John MacArthur comments on the scale. He says, think about the volume of food here. If a small boy can eat five small biscuits and two fish, then can an adult eat 10 biscuits and four small fish? And if you multiply that by 25,000 people, you get an idea of the scale of the miracle that's going on. The thing that struck me, <clears throat> I'm kind of logistical and I'm going, how do 12 disciples distribute food to 25,000 people before midnight? I bet they had some volunteer help, right? The disciples probably passed it on to somebody else who got 25,000 people. So it's interesting that God is the source of all the blessings, but he didn't snap his fingers and say, you're going to be filled. He created something from a given source, multiplied it, and then he used the disciples to distribute the life-giving food to the hungry. Does that strike any parallels with you? That Jesus Christ has entrusted us with what? The bread of life. And we are to what? 
We're in the distribution business. You didn't create the gospel. We're in the gospel distribution business, just like the disciples were in the bread distribution business. Because in that era, bread was life. And you and I have the gospel, which is eternal life. And Jesus Christ amazingly wants to use us to distribute the life-giving blessing of the gospel to others. Everyone's eaten their fill. They're literally gorged. They're full. And he commands his disciples to pick up the fragments and they collect how much? How much? Why 12 exactly 12? Because there's 12 disciples exactly. And do you think they were hungry too? Uh-huh. God knows what we need, exactly what we need. No more, no less. See, God's provision is always precise. It's abundantly precise because he knows exactly what we need and when we need it. You know, from an application standpoint, it's pretty simple. You look at this young boy and you're going, you know, I don't know whether he gave up his lunch voluntarily or whether Andrew just confiscated it. I suspect in the tenor of the parable and the tenor of the historical narrative that he gave it. But it would require faith, yes? It's all he's got to eat. This lunch is it. And it's pretty clear there's lots of hungry adults around looking at his lunch. Maybe he figured the best thing to do is give it to Jesus quick before somebody else took it. <laughs> but he surrendered it to Jesus. And the, the metaphor here is obviously pretty obvious. We all have little. We have five loaves and two fish. Some of you are going... You don't understand. I've got one fish and a half a loaf, and that's it, Brad. I'm, I only have five and two. I got one and one. We all have some talents. We all have some time. We all have some treasure. We all have some health. We all have some relationships. We all have some work. We all have something, and Jesus says, surrender it to me. Put it in my hands. Put those five and two in my hands, and watch me make it into much. And you go, I have no idea how you're going to do that. That's the point. He's God. And he will take our little and he will multiply it into much and minister to the many beyond what you can, I can even understand. Our problem is, do we trust him with the five and two so he can feed 25,000? God has far more ministry to do through us than we're willing to let him do. Because we think, i got to hang on to those five and do that's all i got. Well, when you have the good shepherd next to you who can create something from nothing, I think you got a lot more than five and two. Trust him with that and watch him work. Matter of fact, I just challenge you. Try surrendering something you value to Jesus this week. Just lay it down. Watch what he does. Verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountains to pray. John 6.14 gives us a little additional commentary. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, that's the feeding, they said, this is of a truth the prophet who was to come into the world, the Messiah. Verse 15. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Here's the principle. 
frequent FaceTime with Jesus, I was going to say frequent FaceTime with your shepherd, same thing, will feed your soul and give you the perspective and the power to fulfill his plan for your life. Frequent FaceTime with Jesus will feed your soul and give you the perspective and the power to fulfill his plan for your life. And I use that word FaceTime extremely consciously. I'll tell you what FaceTime is. FaceTime is when your three-year-old child or a three-year-old grandchild grabs your face, puts their hands around it, and says, look at me. Right? You know what I'm talking about? That's FaceTime. That's eyeball-to-eyeball FaceTime. That's intimate. That's direct. That's what it is with Jesus. It's not, well, I'm going to have a little quiet time. It's FaceTime. It's intimate time. And this crowd is intoxicated. I mean, this is beyond health and wealth. This is beyond prosperity. I mean, this is a king who could give you free food, heal your sick, free you from demons, raise your loved ones back to dead. Who wouldn't want a king like that? They're going, man, this guy, we're going to make him king. And what they really wanted, of course, is a Messiah who would lead them to throw off Rome. The occupiers restore Israel to a monarchy like they had under David and Solomon. What they really wanted to do is use Jesus to accomplish their own agenda. Many people today want the same thing. Sometimes our prayer reveals that. We ask God to fulfill our agenda instead of asking him to accomplish his purposes through us. Jesus did not come to earth as a cosmic genie to do what this crowd wanted to do or even what we wanted to do. He came for a specific purpose. The first time he came, he was sent by his heavenly father as the suffering servant to pay the divine penalty for the sins of the world. Now he is coming back a second time. We found that out this morning, right? Some of you for the first time, 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to return as the conquering king and he will rule and reign. But remember, whenever Jesus comes into a situation, he does not come to take sides, he comes in to take over. So when he's done with this miracle, they want to anoint him king. He sends his disciples away immediately. He says, you get in the boat, sail back across the lake, and you go, how come he got rid of his disciples? Because they agreed with the crowd, and they wanted an earthly king too. And he said, I didn't come to be an earthly king. Not the first time. I came to suffer and die. You disciples still don't get it. You get across the lake, and we're going to find out how he protects them later on. So he sends the crowds back to their home, and then it says he goes up to the mountain to pray. And you say, wonder why he went up to the mountain to pray after this massive miracle. Well, I'll tell you something. Number one, he was exhausted. Number two, he, he craves father time. It refocuses him on God's purpose for his life. I'll tell you what was going on during that miracle. Satan was tempting him. Satan was saying, you know, you could, you could become the earthly king right now. You could bypass the cross. You could use your power to you know, heal the sick, raise the dead, feed them. They'll anoint you king over them right now. You don't have to suffer and die to be king. Just take the shortcut. Bypass the cross. Why suffer? The very purpose of Jesus' life was in his death and resurrection. And of course, if he had bypassed the cross, none of us would have salvation. It says he spent much time in prayer with his father. He depended on his father alone. And that discipline of face time with his father kept him focused on completing God's purpose for his life. And that's a good model for us as well. It really, really is. Spend much time, face time, every day alone with Jesus. 
Your great shepherd has provided us with everything we need to complete the work he's called us to do or on earth. And as we spend face time with him every day, he will guide us. He will direct us. He will encourage us. He will fill us. He will empower us. He will love us. He will lead us and he will shepherd us. And as sheep, there is no substitute for face time alone with your shepherd. There is no substitute. If Jesus Christ himself needed time alone with his father for perspective and power and re-energization, how much more us? Amen? Okay, let's summarize, and then I'll ask Tom to come and lead us in prayer and praise. Number one, Jesus provides rest for the weary. If you don't take a break, you'll break in pieces. And some of us are living on the edge right now. Some of us, and I'm probably in this crowd, so you, I'll own it here. Taking a break, of course the disciples didn't have much break, but taking a break means refocusing. It means breaking away and changing your perspective. Number two, only when we see like Jesus sees and feel like Jesus feels will we act like Jesus acts. There's a book called, What Would Jesus Do? You cannot do what Jesus did if you don't see what he saw and feel like he feels and are empowered by the Holy Spirit like he was. Number three, when we surrender our little to Jesus, he multiplies it into much and uses it to meet the needs of the many. My challenge this week is, Take one little thing and surrender it and trust Jesus with it and watch what he does. And lastly, frequent face time with Jesus will feed your soul and give you the perspective and the power to fulfill his plan for your life. I love you all. Now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.